This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. My name is Salvatore Gravano. Early in my life, I was given the nickname Sammy the Bull. I became a made member of the Gambino family in 1976. As part of my cooperation, I told the government about my life of crimes, including the fact that I participated in 19 murders. Sammy the Bull Gravano was John Gotti's main muscle. He admitted to 19 murders. This was something that he could do as easy as taking the dog out for a walk. When you're of that mindset, you're a sociopath. He was a very intelligent man. He wasn't a mad dog. He wasn't a psychopath. He wasn't a guy who just went around hurting people to hurt people. Sam Gravano would never kill you for nothing. But if he had a reason, he would. And that's the difference. He admitted his part in 19 murders. More killing than Jeffrey Dahmer. He's very congenial. He's polite. And, you know, he's not what most people would probably think. Gravano was very much respected, and he gets things done. Pure and simple, he's a doer. Plus, he was a stone-cold killer. I remember the first time uh, we debriefed him. He's got the eyes of a wolf, and it's not like a human look. As this guy could kill me right here and not even be bothered by it. He'd grab a lamp and just beat me up, strangle me, because he's a tough little guy, and not even care. You know, he's that kind of a person. But he's also sharp and uh, cunning. Here in New York City, you heard more graphic testimony today as federal prosecutors try again to nail the man alleged to be America's top mobster. Their star witness, his former aide, a confessed hitman who says he killed at least 19 people. In a Brooklyn courtroom, Sammy the Bull Gravano is violating the blood oath he took when he joined the mob, testifying against his boss, the so-called Teflon Don, or Dapper Don, John Gotti. For Gravano to hear Gotti's diatribes about what a scumbag Gravano was, it incensed him to no end. When we heard that he wanted to flip, my first instinct was that it's a lie. It's a trick. He had every right to Gotti back. 
when Gotti balked, he bit. So if Gotti's gonna balk, Sammy's the one biting. Gotti's not the one pulling the trigger over the years, it was Sammy. What's up, everybody? Uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano was actually born Salvatore Gravano on March 12, 1945 in Brooklyn, New York. His parents were Sicilian immigrants, and they went by the names uh, Giorlando, or Giorlando uh, which, they, his, which was his father. They called him Jerry. Uh, he was a painter at first until he got lead poisoning from the paint, and he ended up having to quit his job. Uh, and join his wife Katerina, which who they called Kay. Uh, they opened up a garment shop. They were making like dresses and clothing and stuff like that. Now his mother, uh, before they did open that shop, she supposedly had worked for a Jewish um, garment company, and she was so good that the owner of this company said, "Hey." You know, you should really go start your own business. You know, you're good enough to do this. So when his dad got lead poisoning from paint, that's exactly what they did. And it was a very good business. Um, you know, his dad and his mom both worked their asses off like seven days a week because they wanted to provide their kids with that better life. And speaking of which, he was the youngest of five children. He was the only boy. He had one sister who was five years older. He had one sister who was nine years older. But he did have one brother and one sister that died before he was born. So that's why a lot of times you'll see he was the youngest of three. He was not. He was actually the youngest of five. Two kids did die before he was born, though, unfortunately. He was raised in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn, which is largely Italian-American, just a working-class neighborhood. A lot of Italian-Americans settled in New York, specifically around Brooklyn and stuff like that. And like I had mentioned, his dad worked really hard to provide a good life for him. They, I mean, he even had a Long Island summer cottage growing up. You know, that wasn't until a little bit later, but they, they worked their ass off. Early on, one of Gravano's relatives remarked that he looked like his Uncle Sammy. So from that point on, everyone called Gravano, started calling him Sammy instead of Salvatore or Sal, which would have been the regular nickname. When his father, like I said, they opened up that dress factory, they did maintain a pretty good standard of living for the family. So it, it begs the question, how did Sammy the Bull end up into, you know, in, end up in the gangster lifestyle? Well... Every Sunday, him and his dad or him and his family would walk to Mass every Sunday. Obviously, they're Catholic. And they would pass gangsters on the street, you know. And they would purposely, his father would purposely make them walk on the opposite side of the street, you know, just to try to avoid them. One day, Sammy asked, he said, Dad, who, who are these guys? You know, who are they? And his dad replied, according to Sammy, he said, They are bad people, but they are our bad people. End quote. And that's the straight up quotation from Sammy himself. He did start getting into trouble at a pretty early age. At age seven, he got caught stealing uh, cupcakes every day from a corner store in Bensonhurst on his way to school. You know, after being caught by the store employee, Gravano was actually upset that he got caught. You know, he got a pretty stern warning, according to the sources. And, you know, he was kind of straightened him up for a little bit. He really didn't want to try 
stealing anything like that anymore. Now, at about age 10, Sammy got, or actually it was on his 10th birthday, he got a bicycle for his birthday. It was all he wanted. It was it was the kid's pride and joy, right? So some bullies come along and steal this bicycle. Now, Gervano found two of the older boys that stole his bicycle. I mean, he charged right across the street to fight him to get his bike back. And like I said, this was in this neighborhood, there were a lot of made guys. And for those of you not familiar with made guys, you know, they're people who are officially made into whatever crime family they belong to. They're untouchables. And these made guys were watching from a cafe that they used to hang out at. And they saw Sammy like fighting two or three people at one time, just, just going full rage mode, right? And some of the made men stepped in and they gave Gravano his bike back. And as he was leaving, one of the made guys remarked, quote, you see that little Sammy? He fights like a bull, end quote. And that is literally how he obtained that nickname of the bull. And that's one of the few reasons that he kind of looked up to the made guys because they were always well-dressed, they were always hanging out, super dapper, all the stereotypes you can imagine. And going back to his father's statement about, you know, they were bad people, but they were our bad people. You got to understand at this time period in the mid-late 50s, hell, even the 30s through the 60s or 70s, These mobsters and these mafiosos, whatever you want to refer to them as, they were community leaders. They weren't politicians. They weren't principals of schools. But you could go to them with with your problems, and they would handle it. They would take care of it. They kept drugs out of the neighborhood. You know, if they saw some shit like Sammy, you know, trying to fight a few bullies for to get his bike back, you know, they would intervene, and they would help out. So... Even though most people didn't know the inner workings of what they did, they did look up to them and they respected these guys because they were, I don't want to say pillars of the community by any means, but they were substantial figures in the community that could help you and that could get stuff done, that could help you find a job, stuff like that. So, you know, he really looked up to that, okay? So at age 13 in 1958, Gravano joined this gang called the Rampers. It was a prominent street gang in Bensonhurst, and he's really starting to get into that gangster mindset. You know, he has posters of Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney on his walls in his bedroom. And also around this time, Gravano starts doing pretty bad in school. He got held back twice. Teachers said he was a slow learner, but they later found out that Sammy was dyslexic. He talks about it. He, he, you know, he got his numbers confused, like three and eight, and got a lot of letters confused. And, and he knew that he wasn't dumb. He just saw them differently from everybody else. And the bad part about this is the children, like all the kids, they start making fun of him. You know, they're calling him stupid. You know, he's getting held back. The teachers say he's slow, and they don't know that he has dyslexia. So he's a horrible student. But needless to say, the bullying stopped when Sammy the Bull started beating the shit out of these kids. (laughs) Like, 
he says, quote, I slapped the laughing out of them. That's the first time I found out violence paid, end quote. You know, he told a story about, you know, him sitting, he would always sit in the back of the class because he didn't want the teacher to select him. You know, he didn't want to be embarrassed. He, he knew he would get the answer wrong, you know, usually because he wasn't very good and dyslexic. So he would get something wrong and the, te- you know, the kids would laugh at him and hit him with books and shit like that. Sammy just got tired of and just started beating the shit out of him. So all the laughing stopped. Like, like he said, you know, I slapped the laughing out of him. <laughs> this is a really interesting story. At age 15, he got caught drunk at school. And the premise of the story is that while he was drunk at school, okay, like I said, he's 15. He gets drunk at school. Uh, he's in the principal's office. Basically, the principal's sitting there saying, hey, man, we're going to call your parents, blah, blah, blah. And Sammy is just like, you know, this has nothing to do with my parents. This has everything to do with me. Like, why are you going to call them? Like, just just deal with me directly. But the principal started calling him a greaseball. And back then, the word greaseball was very racial. It was a, a straight-up racial slur towards Italian people. And he started saying things to the effect of, you know, I, I should have known you're one of those people. You know, your parents ain't going to raise anybody good. They're just, you know, grease balls just like you, blah, blah, blah. Starts going off. So Sammy, 15 years old, stands up, punches, his, breaks his fucking principal's jaw right there in the principal's office. Like, all bullshit aside. And again, Sammy was like, you know... He's like, it didn't bother me. I didn't care about getting in trouble until he started referring to my parents as, as those kinds of people. And he started referring to my parents as greaseballs because, believe it or not, he respected his parents so huge because they worked their ass off. And it didn't go unnoticed to the kids and it didn't go unnoticed to Sammy. So, you know, he was extremely offended by that. So, yeah, he stood up right there in the principal's office, broke that dude's fucking jaw walked on out of there by the time he was 16 pretty much every he got kicked out of pretty much every school no school would take him in it it came to the point where he either had to drop out or go to a reformatory school and he wasn't going to go to a reformatory school so you know gravano's father is trying to discipline him it didn't really work and he tried you know forcing him to attend mass that didn't really work and he ended up working in his parents' dress factory every now and then. And this is probably the instance in Sammy Gravano's life to where he knew that he wanted to be a fucking gangster. One day when he's working in his parents' dress factory, a couple union gangsters come in and tried to extort his dad for using non-union, non-union labor which was always a huge thing with mobsters. Mobsters always controlled the unions. There was a lot of money in union money. So that was like that was a huge even when Gravano was at the pill, at, at the top of his game, he made a shitload of money off of construction unions. And I'll tell you exactly how fucking much he was making a week and you will shit yourself. It is fucking insane. But these union thugs come into his parents' dress factory, and they're just like, you need to use our union's labor. You need to fight, you know, get rid of these people and use our labor. And uh, they said they, they were coming back in a week to collect. 
you know, and if they didn't, they were going to, you know, if they didn't want to hire the union labor, then they were going to just straight up extort the shit out of his dad. So Sammy sees this and he goes over to his dad. He's like, dad, you know, like what, what are these guys talking about? What's going on? And his dad was very calm and collected and was like, don't worry about it. He's like, dad, they, they, you know, these three guys that are, you know, six foot two, six, three, six foot three said they're going to come back and beat you up. What, what is this all about? He's like, Sammy, don't worry about it. It's fine. I'll take care of it. And Sammy was just livid because he really did look up to his parents. He really, really did. And he, like I said, he respected his father a lot. So he doesn't believe that his dad's going to be able to take care of anything. So he goes back to his gang, the Rampers. He goes to the Rampers and he's like, listen, like we need to, when these guys show up, like I want all of us to be there. Let's, let's beat the hell out of these guys. Like, let's not give a shit. You know, let's do it. Sammy's gung ho, man. He's like, this guy's threatening my dad. He goes back to his, Sammy goes back to his gang and is like, let's all just beat the shit out of these dudes trying to fuck with my dad. You know, they straight up They're They're like, well, the leader of the Rampers, I can't remember the dude's name, he pulls Sammy aside and he's like, listen, instead of us just doing that, he's like, here's a gun. If you're going to protect your dad, take this gun. He's like, if you use it, you come get us, we'll take care of it. We'll get rid of the bodies. Nobody will ever know it happened. We got you. So Sammy takes this gun, you know, and he's just working in the dress factory waiting for these thugs to show up, right? So the next week... They do show back up, but what they did not know is that his dad, being from Sicily, he mentions a friend of his, okay, who just happens to be a gangster from the old country, and almost immediately, these union thugs changed. They automatically started apologizing they started saying, you know, don't worry about it. You know, if, hey, if you need help, let us know. We'll help you kind of shit. You know, the thugs are saying that to his dad. And Sammy's just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, you literally, he even told his dad, you know. He's like, what did you say to these guys? All you did was say this guy's name. And his dad was like, listen, just because I'm not involved in anything from the old country doesn't mean I don't I'm not friends with and don't know people from there he's like I knew that if I mentioned his name they would not mess around with me anymore and they didn't they never saw those guys again and I mean they straight up apologized to Sammy's dad all this shit at that point right there you know Sammy realized how much power gangsters had if you had a reputation and you had a name People would not even mess with you. But his dad also realized a lot of this too. And he really, really tried hard to keep Sammy from that gangster lifestyle. He really did. And even Sammy in, in interviews, you know, even recently, like I said, the one I mentioned, you know, he talks about his dad. He's like, my dad did not want me ever to be involved in this because we were from Sicily. He saw it firsthand. He knew people, even though he chose to work for a living and raise us the best way that he could. You know, he's like, I realized that level of respect you can't get that too many other places. He's like, you're not going to get that working seven days a week. So that's kind of when 
Sammy took a turn, you know. He starts thinking about making money and not working for it. You know, he saw how dad is hard works. He starts uh, around this time, uh, around age 16, right around 1964, he starts stealing cars, you know, and he, he's running pretty hard with the Rampers gang. They're stealing all kinds of shit. And it was cool because the Rampers, as a street gang that he had been in for years, you know, as a kid, as a young teenager, like they all took an oath to stick together forever. And I'll be honest with you, for the most part, these dudes did. And it's fucking crazy. So, in 1964, though, at the age of 18, Sammy the Bull Gravano gets drafted into the United States Army. He goes to Fort Jackson, South Carolina for basic, and I believe that was where he was, they said he was stationed at, I'm pretty sure. That's where he said he was stationed at, I'm pretty sure. Now, while he was in the Army, he was never a big guy. He was like 5'5", five, 5'6", five, 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 but he was tougher than fuck, right? And he honestly, like, really loved being a soldier because he respected the rules. He respected the traditions, the hierarchy. He was very organized, and that was his thing. And being in the Army was probably the best fucking thing for this guy. He ended up getting to the rank of corporal. Now, he actually wanted to go to Vietnam, I guess, from what I understand. I, I heard two different things about him wanting to go to Vietnam and then him, you know, not really caring. But, you know, they were given medals for killing people. And Sammy was not a stranger to violence. You know, he had never really killed anybody at this point. But in, in the same effect, you know, he was very loyal to the army very loyal he ended up not going to vietnam though uh just so you know he he was discharged in 66 after after two years uh, right when vietnam was really starting to heat up but his job his mos supposedly he was a mess hall cook you'll see that written in a lot of places um wikipedia says you know he was he worked in the mess hall you know he was a cook whatever honestly that is not true he was in communications and the reason they associate him with being a cook is because of an incident that happened in the mess hall they were short on cooks so sammy went to go pick up some slack in the mess hall you know one day and he was working beside a black guy. In his own words, he's like, yeah, these, these fucking hillbillies come through the line, you know, and he's like, they look at my friend beside me and they put out their trays and they're like, give me some food, boy. Sammy was just like, why are they calling him boy? You know, and he kind of looked at his buddy and his buddy, he said his buddy didn't even flinch and just slopped, you know, food on the, on the tray. And he's like, then they looked at me. And because I'm from New York and I'm Italian, they looked at me and they're like, why don't you give me some food too, boy? And he said he slopped some food on the tray. Apparently it wasn't a big enough ladle of food or something. And one of these quote unquote hillbillies said it wasn't enough. And so he basically was saying, you know, when I tell you to give me some food, boy, you know, I'm telling you to give me some food. <laughs> Sammy was like, you know what? I don't appreciate you calling me or him, boy. You know, and he says the black guy looks at him. And like I said, in Sammy's own words, he's like, I, I was from New York. We didn't play that racist bullshit. I don't give a fuck if this guy's white, black, Italian, Asian. He's like, I don't fucking care. I'm from New York, man. We don't play that shit. So he uh, 
pretty much took one of his ladles, one of his soup ladles, and slapped the shit out of one of these dudes. And then his buddy ended up slapping, you know, hitting uh, Gravano in the head with his food tray. And it just escalated into this huge fight. And um, he said later on, you know, his one of his superiors, one of his officers, who was also a black guy, kind of looked at him. He's like, oh, you like sticking up for us, you know, black people, huh? Blah, blah, blah. And Sammy's just sitting there like listen, man, I don't care about that. He's like, nobody disrespects me. He's like, me and this guy are sitting here doing the same job. I don't give a shit who he's talking to. He's like, he ain't calling either one of us, boy. You know, he's like, so I took care of the situation. <laughs> so that is how Sammy the Bull Gravano um, is associated with being a cook in the army when he was actually communications. As soon as he gets out of the army, which he was honorably discharged after two years, he goes back to Bensonhurst, jumps right back in with his gang, the Rampers, doesn't even skip a beat, you know, back up to his old ways, you know, for about three or four years. And uh, in about 1968, one of his Ramper colleagues, a guy named Tony Spiro, introduces him to his uncle, a, a guy named Tommy Spiro, who's, named, who's known as Shorty. Okay, now... Here's where I'm going to tell you right now. There's a lot of Spiros, okay? And a couple of them are named Tommy. And I'm pretty sure there's a couple Tonys, too. So it's it's going to get a little bit confusing. And there's a lot of Italian names going on, and I'm probably going to mispronounce one or two of them. But, you know, he introduces him to his uncle Tommy Spiro, who is known as Shorty. And he is an associate of the Colombo crime family. Now, Gravano starts getting involved in a lot of crimes about this point. You know, he, he is basically becomes an associate himself. You know, he's 23 at this time. Shorty Spiro, who's known as Tommy, you know, he takes him under his wing. He's like, let me mentor you. He's like, you can be a gangster. Basically telling him, you know, hey, you've got what it takes. And he starts getting into shit like, you know, larceny and heart. Uh, hijacking, armed robbery, racketeering, loan sharking. He was running a poker game in the back room of an after-hours club, which is he was part owner of. Now, he does end up becoming a favorite of the family boss, Joe Colombo, and he would use Colombo would use Gravano to picket the FBI Manhattan headquarters as part of his uh, Italian-American Civil Rights League initiative, which... Joe Colombo is a super interesting guy. He started this whole Italian-American Civil Rights League, and it was fucking crazy back in the late 60s, early 70s. I'm not saying it was a bad thing or whatever, but it's if you look up footage of it, Joe Colombo actually got shot while I it was either before or after he gave a speech at one of these things. He was in a coma for I don't even know how many years before he died, but he's committing all these crimes, you know, just slowly getting worse and worse. And on February 28th, 1970, at the age of 25, Gravano committed his first murder. He killed a guy named Joseph Colucci, who was another associate of Spiro, okay? Shorty Spiro's nephew was having an affair and wanted to marry Joseph Colucci's wife. The thing about Sammy is he didn't care about the reason. He was actually a friend with Colucci. He was buddies with this guy. 
But his whole thing was he's he was following rules. He was following orders. That's what it was for him. He was, you'll hear it come out of his own mouth. He was a good soldier. And that's exactly what he did. So one night, Colucci's driving around in Brooklyn. Um, he's obviously in the front seat of the 64 Riviera. And after they go to a couple bars, uh, Sammy was sitting behind him, pulls out a 38 caliber pistol and shoots him twice in the back of the head. And Gravano described the experience as follows, quote, as the Beatles song played, I became a killer. Joe Colucci was going to die. I was going to kill him because he was plotting to kill me. I felt a rage inside me. Everything went in slow motion. I could almost feel the bullet leaving the gun and entering his skull. It was strange. I didn't hear the first shot. I didn't see any blood. His head just didn't seem to move. I felt like I was a million miles away, like it was all a dream. End quote. And that is... Sammy the Bull Gravano describing his his first murder. Next morning, Joe Colucci's wife finds out about his murder, and Sammy and the rest of the guys go over there to console her. Uh, they basically say, you know, hey, we're going to find whoever did this to your husband, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I actually saw her, uh, I believe, in, a, in an interview you know, and she didn't any say, say anything about any affair, but, but she, you know, she knew it was, it was a gangland hit. She just didn't know who did it. But Sammy and the rest of the gang are over there telling her, Hey, we're going to find out who fucking did this, blah, blah, blah. And the whole time it, it was them. Even though he later said that killing a man never really bothered him. It, it honestly, he said it gave him a sense of power and importance. Like he was serving a purpose. He was following orders. He was, you know, doing what he was told. He was being a good soldier, basically. And the, the, that particular murder did earn him some respect within the family. Uh, in the, in the early 1970s, Colombo soldier Ralph Spiro, who is Shorty's brother, became very envious of Gravano's success because Gravano was moving up the ladder extremely fast. The boss of the family like loved this guy because like I said he followed order orders no questions asked, you know. And uh now he was kind of this Ralph Spiro was kind of fearing that uh he would become a made man before his son Tommy which Tommy was, like I said, another Spiro. Um, and this ended up culminating when a guy named Ralph Ronga died, who was another Colombo family associate, and he was in Ralph Spiro's crew. Now, what happens is, because I know everybody knows that uh, Sammy the Bull's associated with the Gambino family, people don't realize he was a getting to be a very big dog in the Colombo family before he joined the uh, Gambino family. And this is honestly why he did that. After Ranga died, there was this huge rumor that had spread around that Gravano had attempted to pick up, that Gravano had a p attempted to pick up Ranga's widow, a woman named Sybil, Sybil Davis, uh, at a bar, which was right after the funeral. Gravano maintained that Davies was the one hitting on him, okay, and he, and 
he he will tell you he he tells the story in detail he's like yeah you know i'm paying my respects and this guy's wife you know comes up to me and starts telling me about how life goes on and starts touching on me and he's like he looks at her and he's like are you fucking kidding me the body you know your husband's body ain't even cold yet you know like what the hell is the matter with you you know saying this and that so she got pissed and ended up coming you know to the call you know started culminated into uh you know them using that like ralph spiro used that rumor of gravano hitting on her and what he was doing was he was trying to gain support to have gravano killed uh or at least use that as an excuse to kill sammy the bull himself now shorty spiro like i said who was gravano's mentor he believed sammy over literally over his own brother okay he he trusted sammy that much because he knew gravano didn't fuck around like that because gravano was a fucking good soldier you know what i mean he followed orders he followed the rules he didn't fuck around like that so literally shorty spiro like told his brother ralph the guy who was spreading these rumors he's like no like no i don't believe you i actually believe sammy so and because they thought that it would eventually get into something a lot more serious, like there would be some deaths or something, Shorty Spiro goes and arranges for Sammy to leave the Colombo family and join the Gamb- Gambino family. It was basically like a job transfer. And it wasn't exactly a bad thing. Uh, the Gambinos were the most powerful crime family in America at the time. So it wasn't exactly a bad thing for Sammy, even though like all these dudes in the Columbos were guys that he grew up with, you know, they were his friends from the rampers, you know, his mentor shorty and all that stuff. So, I mean, shorty really worked it out for him pretty well to where it was a pretty easy, uh, thing. And even, um, you know, Gravano was like, yeah, you know, when I joined the Gambinos, you know, my boss, you know, the boss or the captain is just like, you know, this, we meet here every day at this time, blah, blah, blah. He's like, it was very organized. And he, he honestly kind of blended. He, the transfer went pretty well, I guess you could say. So in April of 1971, Sammy Gravano marries his sweetheart Deborah Shibetta. Uh she was 18 at the time. Uh, they had been dating for about a year, and believe it or not, she knew exactly who he was. She knew that he was a gangster. Uh, her uncle was actually a captain uh, in the mafia. It did not specify which family, nor did I look it up. Uh, and they ended up having two children together by the names of Karen and Gerard. And as a lot of you know, who anybody who used to watch that show, Mob Wives, Karen, Karen Gravano was was on that show. So uh, Gerard ended up, you know, he was kind of timid. He was kind of like his wife, but um, by all accounts, Sammy loved his wife a lot. Like this was his girl, man. Um, he. I don't know. That's all, that's pretty much everywhere I read. It was like he just absolutely loved that woman. Now, the Colucci murder won respect and approval from um, Carmine Persico. Uh, 
you know, for Gravano. And Gravano later became a mentor to Colucci's son, Jack Colucci, who became in the who became involved in the construction industry as a Gambino associate. Now, while he's with the Gambinos, he becomes an associate of uh, uh, Captain Salvatore Toto Arello. Orello, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. And just like anywhere else, they immediately loved Gravano. And uh, Toto, or Tato, I'm not sure how the fuck you pronounce that. But the older Orello basically took him under his wing and became his mentor from then on. He was his captain. Now... I will say this, around this time, Gravano did take a construction job, just a regular 9-to-5 job, and he later claimed to have been, he took it because he was considering leaving the criminal life shortly after he got married and had kids, because he didn't, you know, he knew the end game for the gangsters, you know, it was either death or prison, you know, one or the other, and he grew up in a very, you know, functional household where his his parents worked really really hard and he wanted to provide that same kind of lifestyle for his kids so he really was considering uh, leaving his criminal life now what happens is a former associate of Gravano's falsely claims to the New York District Attorney's Office that Gravano and another associate were responsible for a double murder in 1969 now, Gravano ends up getting indicted for this, and he needed money to pay his legal bills like crazy, okay? So he quit his construction gra- construction job and went on a self-described robbing rampage for a year and a half. Uh, one week into the trial, the prosecution moved to dismiss all the charges, and Gravano later described his legal problem as, quote, that pinch changed my whole life. I never, ever stopped a second from there on in. I was like a madman. I never stopped stealing, never stopped robbing. I was obsessed, end quote. Now, his robbery spree did impress his mentor, Arello, and uh, he proposed him for, he proposed Gravano for membership into the Gambino crime family, and that would have made Gravano a made man, like I had referred to, you know, earlier on. So in 1976, at the age of 31, La Cosa Nostra's membership books were finally reopened. They were, uh, they were closed since the late 50s. They weren't making any new guys. There weren't any new made men. And Gravano became one of the very first to be sworn in. Now, a couple years later, in 1978, He's at an after-hours club in Bensonhurst, and he meets a guy by the name of John Gotti. Now, these two had vaguely known each other. Uh, They each had their own reputations in their own neighborhoods because uh, John Gotti was not, you know, from the same neighborhood as him. Uh, I believe Sammy described it as, you know, he knew John because John had stuck up for a friend of his and then vice versa, like, they each had their own reputations, and they each respected each other's reputations, if that makes sense, but they were never, like, really tight, 
before this. They weren't even fucking close right now, you know what I mean? They're just they're just meeting each other. But they were total opposites. Like, total opposites. Gotti was flashy. He loved going out at night. He loved people recognizing. He, he liked having that power. He liked, you know, wielding that power. All of that shit. But Sammy the Bull was super chill. He was very laid back. He wasn't a flashy dresser. He did not want attention. Uh, he enjoyed playing chess. You know, he, uh, he, he, he was a thinking, he was a thinker, he was a planner and he loved his family. He liked going home every night to his family. So, I mean, these two could not have been more opposite from one another, which is interesting when you start looking at their friendship here in a few years. Now, and also in 1978, his wife's, Gravano's wife, her brother, guy named guy by the name of uh, uh, Nicholas Shibeta, uh, which is like I said, Sammy's brother-in-law. He starts attracting attention of the Gambino leadership. And he starts acting really, really erratic. Okay, and he starts using, you know, he's using a lot of cocaine. He's drinking a lot. He's getting into fights with other associates. And there's also a lot of rumors about him being a homosexual. Now, obviously, I I can't speak for the mafia, but I do know that from all documentation that I've read and done a lot, I've researched the mafia a lot, uh, being a homosexual is a no-go. They will literally fucking kill you for that shit. Uh, it is an embarrassment to your family. It is an embarrassment to the organization. You know, it is a it is an embarrassment to your crime family as well. So, there one night there's this fight that happened, and after the fight got over, uh, Shibeta, um ended up having the guy that he fought arrested, and it wasn't even. I don't even think it was Shibeta's fault, but there was a fight that broke out, and he ended up talking to the cops, and the guy got arrested. So that earned him a reputation as a rat, okay? So to the Gambino family, they're like, oh, well, shit, if he's going to rat out a guy for a fucking fist fight, you know, and then there's all this other shit going on, like, we need to fucking kill him. And, you know, this is Gravano's fucking brother-in-law, right? So, you know... (sighs) What pretty much sealed Shibeta's fate was he insulted the daughter of a guy named George De, George DeSico, De or DeChico, depends where you're from, is how you pronounce it, and he was the uncle of a Gambino member, a made man named Frank DeSico. Um, now, when they heard the news, Gravano gave his brother-in-law just the fucking ass-beating of his life, and he did that. Not to be a dick, but to try to save him from getting fucking killed, man. He literally just handed this dude out a beating. Just so, you know, and he came back and, you know, he's trying to say, I took care of the, took care of the problem. You know, he won't be fucking doing any more of this shit. But the, the older DeSico, you know, he took this shit to Paul Castellano, who's the, the, um, uh, boss of the Gambino family. And he straight up ordered a hit on Shibeta. And uh, the hit was the hit, the order was given to Frank DeSico, who was told not to tell Sam Gravano. All right. Now, 
DeSico gave the contract to a dude named Louis Melito, uh, Stymie D'Angelo, who were uh, two associates of uh, on Gravano's crew. Now, after the three of them started talking, uh, they agreed that it was wrong not to tell Sammy the Bull because, it, like I said, man, it's his fucking brother-in-law. So DeSico went to Paul Castellano, the boss, and persuaded him to give permission to inform Gravano. But Castellano also authorized DeSico to kill Gravano if he opposed to the murder. So basically Castellano is like, all right, originally I told you that you're not allowed to fucking tell Gravano we're going to kill his brother-in-law, but now you can go ahead and tell him. But if he disagrees with it, or if he opposes it in any way, then kill him too. So, I mean, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place right now, right? So when the guys go to tell Gravano about the hit on his brother-in-law, Gravano's pissed off. And he straight up wants to kill the boss. He's like, I'm going to fucking kill Paul Castellano. You know, and obviously that wasn't going to happen. And DeSico told him, he's like, listen, man, if you oppose this, you know, you're you're going to die. You You have no choice. So Sammy the Bull very reluctantly agreed. Whether Gravano was involved or not, that still remains unknown. It's speculated that he was because of it being a family member. But the only part of Shibeta's body that was ever recovered was one of his hands. And that wasn't even recovered until March of 1981. He was declared legally dead in 85. He was straight up cut into a shitload of pieces. That's that's how they killed him and got rid of him, so... Around this time, Gravano opens an after-hours club in Bensonhurst, and the bar was a scene of, of a very, very violent altercation one night involving a biker gang, and they were going to basically trash the bar. For anybody who's seen that movie, The Bronx Tale, this is probably the inspiration for that scene in that movie, The Bronx Tale, where, you know... For those of you who have never seen that, you should really see it. It's a pretty fucking awesome movie. But there's a scene where there's a bunch of gangsters who get into a fight with uh, some bikers. And pretty much what happened in real life, not in the movie. But, I mean, dude, a big brawl ended up happening, right? So Gravano ended up breaking his ankles. And some of the bikers, you know, they ended up getting chased off or whatever. And Gravano went to Castellano and got permission to murder the leader of this biker gang. Him and uh, Louis Melito hunted down the leader, and they ended up only wounding him, but they killed another member of the gang. And Castellano couldn't even fucking believe that he participated in that himself, because Gravano was on crutches with a broken ankle and still was out hunting this dude down trying to fucking kill him, and literally tried, but ended up killing another guy instead, who was a member of the gang, and then the leader ended up becoming wounded. Castellano did like Sammy the Bull quite a bit. So Castellano, him as a boss, he was more sophisticated. You know, he had a lot of schemes involving construction, trucking, garbage disposal. He didn't really like the street-level activities like loan sharking, gambling, and hijacking. 
And uh, Castellano was very involved and had a huge interest in the construction business. Now, Gravano at this time had a, a reputation as being a cowboy. You know, he was a street guy, but he wanted to change. You know, he wanted to start making this money. So he so he got into the plumbing and drywall business with his with one of his friends, a guy named um, Eddie Gara Garafola. I think that's how you pronounce the last name. Eddie Garafola. Garafola, something like that. Uh, Gravano's construction and his businesses started earning him a reputation as, as a good earner. And in any kind of mafia crime family, there's two people that there's one of two people that you need to be. You either need to be a killer or you need to be an earner and make make money for the family. Sammy Gravano was doing both. All right. Now, this made Sammy a multimillionaire. Okay, he builds this huge estate for his family in New Jersey. You know, he was coming home every night, every evening. He, Like I said, he was a family man, all right? He was a guy who made a shitload of money and then invested that shitload of money to make even more money, okay? Yeah, I mean, he invested in trotting horses to race at the Meadowlands. He had a, a disco that he owned called the Plaza Suite. You know, it was in the uh, Gravesend section of Brooklyn. Gravano reportedly made about $4,000 a week from the Plaza Suite alone, uh, and he also used the club as his uh, construction and racket headquarters. Now, I will say this, in Gravano's heyday, okay, when he had his toes in every single kind of construction you can imagine, I mean, pouring concrete, doing the drywall, doing the carpentry, doing the plumbing, Sammy owned a shitload of legitimate companies that did all this. So this dude is literally, in his heyday, he was making half a million dollars a fucking month. Think about that for a second. Half a million dollars a month. And this is all, this was legit money. This wasn't even illegal money. This was legit money. Okay, so he's kicking up all this money to Castellano, and Castellano's like, God damn it, kid, I love you. Like, you're making me a shitload of money. And Castellano, Paul Castellano was a very greedy boss. So he really loved Sammy the Bull, but you could never please Castellano. I mean, he just wanted more and more and more. But on the flip side of it, Gravano, if Castellano told him to kill a motherfucker, dude, Sammy the Bull wasn't even going to question it. He was going to go out there and kill this dude. Because he's following orders. So Castellano takes quite a bit of a, of a liking to him, you know. At one point, Castellano had problems with some of the water pressure in his fucking mansion. Gravano sent a couple guys to fix it. That's when him and Castellano actually started meeting one-on-one. -on -one and they found out that they had a lot of the same views on business. Because Sammy the Bull might have not had, you know, he had a 10th grade education you know, ninth, 10th grade education, but he was not dumb by any means. The dude was smart and he knew how to do business. Okay. He could, he could maneuver people. He could negotiate with people as we're going to see in the future here when it comes to jury members and shit. But he, he was a negotiator. He knew how businesses worked. So he's making a fuckload of money. He controlled uh, labor unions. You know, if companies wanted to work with anyone else, to, you know, to avoid labor strikes, they had to go through the mafia, they had to go mainly through the Gambino family and, and uh, uh, Sammy the Bull, you know. So Castellano ends up putting Sammy in charge of these unions. And I mean, like I said, he, he's literally known as a shrewd businessman. He was also known to do good work. 
And he would never do half-ass work, even though, you know, because of who he was, it didn't matter. A lot of people wanted to do business with him because of that. But, dude, some people didn't want to do business with him because a lot of people claim that somehow he would eventually take over their business when, in all actuality, that's not really how it worked. In a couple interviews, he tells a couple stories about, you know, being involved. And he had such a good reputation that people would hear from somebody else like, hey, Sammy the Bull took a $300,000 hit on this investment, but he didn't bat an eye. You know, I, you know, I feel bad for him. So then other people knew that he would do good work. So they would hire him, you know, and he would bend over backwards to send workers out, you know, to do carpentry or plumbing or whatever the case might be. So he didn't exactly have a bad reputation as being a businessman, right? So in March 1980, this one starts getting a little crazy. Um, the, the boss of the Philly mob, a dude named Angelo Bruno, was assassinated by a guy named uh, Antonio Caponegro. I hope that's how you say his name. Uh, who was actually his consigliere. Cons- consigliere. Uh, now, the problem with this is you cannot kill a made man without permission from the commission. Now, as we know from my Bugsy Siegel episode... You know, the commission is the leaders of the five families. They all have to agree on hits of made members. You know, like it's got to be some serious shit. Well, he didn't get this authorization from the commission. So the commission ended up summoning uh, Capo Negro to New York and they straight up sentenced him to death, you know, for not going through the proper channels to have Angelo Bruno killed. So Capo Negro. Uh, was he was tortured and killed, and the commission placed contracts on Caponegro's, uh, the people who conspired with him, a guy named Johnny Key Simone, and uh, this this guy happened to be Bruno's cousin. Um, the the Simone contract. The reason I bring up the Simone contract is because that was the one that was given to Sammy the Bull. So Sammy the Bull becomes friends with this dude, and he gets help from Louis Melito and D'Angelo. And they kidnapped Simone from a golf club in Yardley, Pennsylvania, drove him uh, to a wooded area and in Staten Island. And Simone wanted to die with his shoes off. It, he said it was something that he promised. He, he made a promise to his wife that if he died at the hands of a made man, he would die w- with his shoes off so that she would know you know, he had it coming or not to pursue it or be mad about it. Now, after Gravano took off Simone's shoes, Melito shot Simone in the back of the head, you know, killing him instantly. A Sammy the Bull later expressed admiration for Simone's being a man's man. He remarked, you know, that he was so calm about how he accepted his fate. Like, he knew he fucked up. He accepted the consequences of it. And Gravano admired that gravano for this killing got a lot more praise from castellano gravano also said that in in his own words quote it's a hit i will never be proud of end quote as fucked up as it sounds that tells you a lot about gravano's character too you know because like i said he just he didn't think it was right what he was doing but he was following orders he had to do it now in the early 1980s the plaza suite sammy the bull's disco tech it was 
thriving, making a shitload of money. I mean, there were people having to wait like an hour to get into the door, and they had people like Chubby Checker singing there, the Four Tops, all kinds of shit. All right, so I mean, he's doing very, very well, okay? So in 1982, a guy named Frank Fiala, I don't know, it's F-I-A-L-A, we're going to say Fiala, and Fiala is a wealthy businessman, and he's a fucking drug trafficker, and he pays Sammy the Bull $40,000 to rent the Plaza Suite for a birthday party he was throwing for himself. Two days after the party, Gravano accepted $1 million for Fiala to buy the bar from him, and the bar was only valued at about $200,000, right? So Gravano was like, hell yeah, I'll sell you the bar. You know, I'll, you offered me a million bucks. It's only worth 200,000. I'll fucking take it. The deal was structured to include a hundred thousand dollars cash as a down payment and then sixty six hundred and fifty thousand dollars in gold bullion under the table and to a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar payment at the real estate closing. Now, before the transaction was completed, Fiala began acting like he already owned the club. He started remodeling it. He hired his own bouncers. He ended up moving into Gravano's private office and breaking through the office wall. Gravano was fucking livid, right? So he walks into this office and he's got his buddy uh, Garofolo with him. And Fiala was standing behind Gravano's desk and he sat down in his fucking chair and he just fucking started like smiling at these dudes, like smirking at them. And he says, quote, what do you think you're doing? You know, and that's what Gravano said to him. And he says, he goes on to say, this doesn't belong to you till the closing. Get the hell out of here. And Fiala reached into a desk drawer and he pulls out a fucking Uzi, man. A little Uzi machine gun. And he aimed it at both these dudes which was, you know, uh, Garofola and uh, Gravano. And he told him, he's like, sit down. And he's like, you fucking greaseballs, you do things my way. Okay, so if I already told you once about how fucking bad Sammy the Bull does not, that word getting called greaseball does not fucking roll with him very well, right? So one night, you know, when he's leaving the Plaza Suite, Gravano called Garofola he set up an ambush outside the club, right, involving, uh, you know, Melito and D'Angelo and a couple other dudes, too. Guy, Another guy named uh, Michael DeBat, who comes into the picture a little bit later. But later that night, Gravano confronted Fiala on the street as he walked out of the plaza suite, and he had a group of people around him and shit. Zero fucks given. Sammy the Bull says, hey, Frank, how you doing? And as Fiala turned around... And he was surprised as fuck to see Gravano. Louis Melito uh, came up behind Fiala and shot him in the head. Melito stood over the body and fired a shot into each one of Fiala's eyes. And this is while uh, Fiala's entourage and the whole crowd of people just start screaming and fucking running away, right? Gravano walks up to Fiala's corpse and straight up pulled his dick out and took a fucking piss in his mouth. Now, let me tell you something about a fucking guy. That is fucking legit brutal. But, like I said, man, the guy's trying to fuck him over, points a gun at him, calls him a fucking greaseball, which I'm pretty sure is the only fucking word in the world that Gravano hates. He broke his fucking principal's job for calling him a greaseball. 
Now, Gravano was pretty sure that the entire fucking neighborhood knew he was responsible for the murder, okay? He was never charged with the crime. Gravano had made a $5,000 payoff to the lead investigator of the New York Police Department, a homicide detective by the name of Louis Epolito, to ensure the investigation yielded no leads. And for those of you who do not know who Louis Epolito is... He is one of the mob cops, one of the two mob cops. I do believe he actually, uh, I'm not sure if it was him or the other one. One of them passed away recently. So uh, now he didn't get any, no criminal charges, nothing. But Castellano was madder than fuck, man, because you have to get permission to fucking kill people. All right. Castellano was very adamant about that in the Gambino family. Gravano fucking knew that he was that his boss Castellano was going to be pissed. So he, he goes on, you know, he goes on the lamb for about three weeks. You know, he's just chilling, you know, he calls his crew together and he straight up is like, Hey, if Castellano puts out an order to kill me, he's like, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill the fucking boss and we're going to take over the family. He's like, I don't give a shit anymore. You know, Castellano at this point starts starts resenting him a little bit, okay? At the same time, Gravano is realizing that Castellano has never been a street guy. He's never paid his dues, you know? He's never fucking made his bones, so to speak. He's always been on the business aspect. He's never gotten his fucking hands dirty. So there's like a mutual resentment going on between these two guys right now. So, Gravano and Melito were summoned to a meeting with Castellano, and Castellano had been given the details of what Fiala had done, but he was still pretty pissed at Gravano, and he was just pissed because he didn't come to him for permission to kill Fiala first. He more he would have let him fucking do it if he would have told him the situation, but Gravano was like, fuck that, I'm killing him now, you know? Um... He was spared execution. Gravano was almost killed for this because he did show up for the fucking meeting. He really fucking did, man. He showed up for that fucking meeting knowing that there was a good fucking chance that they were going to kill him. And he was spared execution. He convinced Castellano the reason he kept him in the dark was was to protect Castellano in case something went wrong with the hit like if something fucked up you know he's like well you know that way if we fucked up then it couldn't ever be tied back to you and that's why we did it you know so he he got a pass on that one now Fiala's murder did cause a little bit of a problem for Gravano with the IRS it was a very public execution of a dude you know, it triggered an IRS investigation into Gravano and Fiala's deal for the sale of the Plaza Suite. And Gravano was, um, he was charged with, ended up getting charged with tax evasion for that. He did also end up getting acquitted at his trial. So he did not get any time for that. Now in 1984, Castellano goes into business with Giganti from the Genovese crime family. Uh, this was a big fucking thing, okay? Because Gigante, the chin, <laughs> I think it was, I think his first name was Vincent, but they called him the chin because he grew up, he was a boxer when he was growing up. He's also a super fascinating guy, but he was the boss of the Genovese crime family, but they were rivals. They left 
all the Gambino crews out of the contracts for this business venture, okay? Then Castellano let Gigante kill a Gambino captain. And Gravano was fucking pissed. He's like, this is unforgivable, man. Like, this is literally going against your own fucking family for money. And this is when this rebellion starts. This is when it really fucking starts for Gravano. It had already been sinking in with Gotti a little bit. But when Gravano gets this information, this is when him and Gotti really team up to fucking kill Paul Castellano. Literally the fucking boss of the Gambino crime family. Now, after everything with the Fiala murder, uh, Gravano continued to go into more into construction. He uh, made a very, very lucrative concrete paving industry or company. He gets his he gets his fingers in that. Um, the the cement industry in New York at this time through through the uh the mid 80s was literally controlled by four of the five families of the fucking mafia let that sink in for a second if you needed any fucking building built you had to go through the fucking mafia in order to do it that's how fucking powerful these guys were now this made millions and millions of dollars they would manipulate bids they would steer contracts um in 1998 Cravano went on to say quote i literally controlled manhattan literally you want concrete poured in manhattan that was me tishman trump all these guys they couldn't build a building without me end quote and it's fucking absolutely true any fucking person in new york that wanted a building built had to go through sammy the bull he was getting a cut of that shit now gravano eventually became uh got into a dispute with a business partner a guy named uh louis de bono he was a he was a member of a different gambino crew and there was a sit down with Paul Castellano and Gravano was talking about uh, De Bono withholding $200,000 in payments for subcontracts. And he told Castellano, he's like, I'm going to kill this motherfucker, man. And, and Gambino underboss, a guy by the name of Neil Delacroce or Neil Delacroce, he intervened on Gravano's behalf, and Castellano told the two men to end their business partnership. He just said, fuck it, you guys are done, right? So Gravano's standings with the boss are kind of slipping a little bit, but Delacroce, he was the mentor of John Gotti, who was making his way up fast the ladder. And just so you guys know, interesting fact, Sammy the Bull Gravano was actually a made man a year before John Gotti. Okay, that's how much love this dude had and how good he was at what he did. He was a made man before John Gotti. Okay, and they they were coming up about the same time. Uh, when word got back to John Gotti that Delacroach supported Gravano, Gotti was was pretty fucking impressed by it. He's like, you know what? He's like, I've heard good things about this dude. I've met him. You know, he's helped me out a few times. I fucking like this shit. So in in um in August of 1983, uh, you know, during this time, okay, the FBI is starting to really, really get into the Gambino family. Um, there were 
a shitload of efforts. Usually, it was drug related. Okay, and drug drug related drug shit in the mafia is no good. I don't know how it is now, but back then it was a strict no. Like if they found out you were dealing fucking drugs, they would kill you. No questions asked nothing like because drug trafficking it was so fucking profitable but at the same time it drew so much attention from law enforcement that they were just like no fuck that don't touch it blah 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 but three guys from Gotti's crew John Gotti's own crew Angelo Ruggiero or Ruggiero John Carneglia and Gene Gotti who was the brother of John they were indicted on heroin trafficking now, Castellano, like I said, man, even his, even the former boss, you know, Carlo Gambino, dude, they were strictly against anybody dealing narcotics. So Castellano pl- planned to kill Gene Gotti and Ruggiero, you know, if, if he believed that they were drug traffickers, because there was, it wasn't a hundred percent known yet. You know, there was a suspicion and they might have been accused of it, but it was not proven yet. Okay. So Castellano asked Ruggiero for a copy of the government surveillance tapes that had Ruggiero's conversations. Now, in order to save Gene Gotti and Ruggiero, Delacroach stalled the demand. He, 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 he was like, no, he's like, we, you know, we don't, you know, we don't need these exactly right yet because if Castellano gets those government surveillance tapes, surveillance tapes of Ruggiero and Gene Gotti talking about the drug trafficking, then he will know for a fact that they're fucking doing it and they're going to get fucking killed. Right. So, and how it happened was the, uh, the FBI had bugged Ruggiero's house and telephone. Castellano decided he wanted the copies of the tapes to justify the fact that he was going to fucking kill these dudes, you know? And, uh, like I said, you know, eventually here in a minute, you know, one of the reasons John Gotti kills Castellano is to literally save his brother and Ruggiero from getting fucking killed, even though they knowingly fucking broke the rules. Um, so, you know, at about this time too, all right, it's, there's just so much shit going on, all right, Castellano gets indicted for, for two things, one, his, inca- his connection to Roy DeMeo's stolen car ring, okay, which, uh, for those of you who heard my Roy DeMeo episode on the regular feed, yeah, he was, uh, it was fucking crazy shit, and, uh, and he was part, uh, uh, got indicted for his part in the Mafia Commission trial. Now, he learned that his own house had been bugged on the basis of evidence from the Ruggiero tapes. And he fucking got so fucking mad. Casolano was fucking pissed, right? So in June 1985, he, te- he told Delacroach again, he's like, get me those fucking tapes. Those surveillance tapes of them fucking talking. I need to know what the fuck's going on. I need to know who the hell we gotta fucking kill. But Delacroach and Gotti tried to convince Ruggiero to comply if Castellano explained beforehand how he intended to use the tapes. Ruggiero refused. And because he knew that if he turned over those tapes, they were fucking dead. Okay? So three months later, Gravano gets approached by this dude named Robert DiBernardo, and they called him, I believe they called him uh, DB, 
and he was a he was a fellow Gambino member. Uh, he was basically the um, uh, the middleman between Gotti and Gravano, right? So D Bernardo, this DB, he informed him that Gotti and Ruggiero wanted to meet with him in Queens, and uh, because that's where Gotti was from. And so Gravano goes to Queens. And he found out that only Ruggiero was present. And Ruggiero informed Gravano that he and Gotti were planning to murder Paul Castellano. And he asked for support from Gravano. And at first Gravano was like, no, man, like, fuck that. You know, he wanted to, you know, talk it over first with, uh, you know, one of his dudes, Frank DeSico. And in conversation with DeSico, both men voiced concern that Castellano would, would, you know, designate his nephew Thomas Thomas Gambino, you know, you know, both, both the boss, you know, and then his driver, Tommy Bellotti would be underboss. And, uh, you know, in the event that he was con- convicted and sent to prison and the Gravano and DeSico are sitting here like, man, these two guys are fucking nothing. Like they can't, they're not leadership material. So they decided to support the murder of Paul Castellano. And this is pretty much how it all goes down. This shit is is pretty exciting and very well planned out. So for me, true crime, mysteries, all that good stuff is my passion. But I do need an occasional break. When I feel like a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a casual game anybody can play, but it is made for adults. It's super fun. It's super awesome. You can spend as much or as little time as you like on the game. Within the first couple days I started playing it, I almost made it to level 100. Like, that's how fun it is, and you just want to keep going and going. Because once you get a routine, you get a rhythm down, you just go. I personally like to play in my off time when I'm at break at work especially when I want to get my mind off of uh, true crime and some of the other things that I talk about. The visual aspects of this game are great, too. It's a bunch of bright colors. It's got a great design. I mean, you just use it right there on your phone. For me, personally, it's the puzzles. That's what I come back for. And the characters in these games, too, are these cute little freaking bugs, you know, and then there's slugs as well. The coolest part is that it updates the game monthly with new levels, new events, It's unlike any other puzzle game out there. It just never gets old, right? Best Fiends treats the game like a service for their players. Another cool thing, too, is that it does not require the internet for you to play it, which means you can play it while you're traveling. You play anywhere, planes, trains, and you just sit there and collect the characters. You keep on going, and you use these characters to strategically get to the next level. So if you want to engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters, trust me, with over 100 million downloads, it's a 5-star rated mobile puzzle game that is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
So Gravano's second choice to become boss after Castellano's murder was Frank DeSico. He's like, this is who I want to be boss. He's fucking made 40s badass. DeSico felt that John Gotti's ego was too big to take any kind of subservient role. He honestly felt he's like, if we do this, fucking Gotti is not going to be anything but the head guy. Like, his ego is fucking out of control, which it truly was. If you guys honestly want to know, the fall of the Gambino family was not Sammy the Bull Gravano testifying in open court about all this shit. You know, admitting to 19 murders and putting almost 40 mobsters behind fucking bars. It was John Gotti's fucking ego and him being flashy and wanting fucking attention. DeSico said, he kept saying, Gotti's, he's a bold guy, he's intelligent, he's got charisma, you know, he'll be a good boss, and he pretty much convinced Gravano to give Gotti a chance. Okay, so DeSico and Gravano, they made a secret pact to kill Gotti and take over the family as boss and underboss if they were unhappy with Gotti's leadership after a year. This whole time, they're scheming to kill Paul Castellano, the boss. Gravano and DeSico are just, you know, DeSico's like, no, Gotti will be a good boss once we kill Castellano. Gravano's like, nah, man, this dude is too fucking out of control. You know, he's uh, got a huge ego. He's too flashy. Gravano was more of a uh, traditional old school gangster. He's very low profile. You know, he'd show up in work clothes, just a cheap suit, jeans, you know, a hoodie sweatshirt, fucking... You know, fucking John Gotti showing up everywhere with $200 neckties, fucking $3,000 Armani suits, you know, all this shit. So fucking DeSico and Gravano literally are like, okay, we'll let Gotti, Gotti be the boss after we kill Castellano. But after a year, if we're not happy with him, then we're going to fucking kill him and we're going to be boss and underboss. So that was the fucking pact that they made. So there's like all this shit's going on, right? So all these guys who are conspiring this shit. Um, the first order of business was a meeting with, with other Gambino members. They had to get a bunch of people in on this. Um, pretty much it was a lot of guys who were pissed off with fucking Paul Castellano, who had either been wronged by him or who are, you know, getting ripped off by him because Paul Castellano just kept wanting bigger and bigger cuts of the percentages, you know, and everything like that. So, you know, they're out here breaking their backs and Paul Castellano, who never did any dirt in the streets is just keeps getting kicked up all this fucking money. Right. So they Gravano and DeSico and, um, the Gotti, they start gaining all this support from all these Gambino members. And they also, you know, get a fucking captain in on it. Guy named fucking Joseph Armone. Uh, he's known as Piney. They get him involved in it. Now, with with a captain's support, that was critical, okay? He was a very respected guy who was an old-timer. He was in the family a long fucking time. And he knew that after they killed Castellano, they could use um, Armon to gather support for the people who did like Castellano, you know, after, after the whole hit and everything like that. So... The next step was pretty much just planning the hit and the involvement with like with like the other families. Okay, it it, it is a huge fucking rule. Like you cannot fucking kill a mafia boss. It is absolutely forgiven. Forgiven. You have to have the majority of 
support from the commission in order to do so. And that boss has got to be seriously fucking up in order to get that support. Now, Gotti's hit would have been the first off-the-record hit of a boss since Frank Costello. Uh, he was killed in 1957. Now, it was a risky approach for the other four bosses directly, so they got support of higher-level mobsters that were in their age range from the Lucchese and Colombo and Bonanno families. So they did have support from other families, they just didn't have support from other bosses. And Gotti and Ruggiero, uh then they obtained the approval of key figures from the Columbos and Bananos, and DeSico secured that fact, or secured the backing of a shitload of mobsters aligned with the Lucchese's. So they really didn't even approach the Genovese family, because Castellano uh, was very close with, you know, Vincent Gigante, who was the Genovese boss, and they were in business together, and they really knew that if they even said anything to any Genovese family, it was going to go straight to the top, you know, so this is how they gained the support, you know, for off-the-record type people for three out of the five families, which in his mind was like, well, we got the majority, so we're good, you know. So on December 2nd, 1985, Neil Delacroix, he dies, okay? This is the only thing that was holding back Gotti to kill Castellano, okay? Because Paul Castellano chose not to attend Neil Delacroix's wake. And that fucking burned John Gotti so bad because Gotti always thought that Neil Delacroach should have been the underboss. He felt that he should have been the boss when when Carlo Gambino died, but he gave it to Castellano because Castellano was his son-in-law. Here's how the shit goes down. Castellano invited DeSico to a meeting on December 16th. 1980 1985 with a few capos you had thomas gambino james uh phyla danny marino and it was going to be like i said on december 16th 1985 at sparks steakhouse in Man manhattan which is on 46th street between second and third avenue the all the people conspiring said the restaurant was a perfect location for the hit because the area would be packed with crowds of holiday shoppers and it would make it super easy for the assassins to blend in and escape. And even Sammy Gravano later on said he's like, you don't even understand. Like this is, you know, 10 to a week and a half before Christmas. He's like, there's thousands of fucking people walking around out here. So the plans for the assassination were finalized on December 15th. The next afternoon, conspirators met for the last time, and at Gotti's suggestion, the shooters wore long white trench coats and black fur Russian hats, which Gravano agreed was a really brilliant idea because, you know, that's a pretty rough description, and the people murdering them could just strip the shit off and, and get away, whatever. So... Gravano and Gotti arrived at the restaurant shortly before 5 p.m. And they circled the block. They parked their car across the intersection about a half a block away. And within, uh, they were within view of the entrance to Sparks Steakhouse. And I shit you not, Sammy Gravano, he was, 
he was uh, in the passenger seat, carried along a three fifty seven Magnum with him. And this was in case the assassination failed, because in Gravano's mind, which is every fucking bit of true, if this assassination attempt failed, they were all fucking dead. They were all going to die. So Gravano's like, fuck it, if they mess this up, I'm going to walk up with this fucking Magnum and just straight up put a few bullets in his head myself. And John Gotti actually didn't even have a gun. He was driving the car, which Gravano was like, what the fuck? You know, he later on said uh, there was a thing that Gravano said. He's like, kind of fucking guy doesn't bring a gun to a gunfight. But that was whatever. They also had five guys who were initially going to be the assassins. They also had four backup assassins around the corner as well. So they had fucking nine guys on the street that night, plus Sammy the Bull in a car parked halfway down the fucking block with a three fifty seven Magnum revolver. Like, they were going to fucking kill this guy this night. And at 5.26 p.m., Gravano spots Castellano's Lincoln Town car. It stopped at a nearby intersection, and he's got a walkie-talkie, and he, he, um, he alerts the hitmen who are outside the restaurant. You know, he says, hey, Castellano's approaching. So Castellano's driver, a guy named Tommy Bellotti, he pulls the car directly in front of the entrance. And as uh, Castellano and Bellotti go to exit the car, um, there were five shooters that moved in, opened fire, killing both men with a shitload. Bellotti was shot six times in the head and chest. Or Bellotti was Castellano was shot six times in the head and body and lost both of his eyes. And the guys, the all the assassins, you know, they slipped away. They got away. Gotti calmly drove up to the car, you know, and passed in front of the restaurant to look at the scene. You know, and he looks at Bellotti and he, you know, he looks out the passenger window and he's like, "Yeah, he's, you know, he's gone. He's done." Sammy Gravano later comes out and says, he's like, you know, he's like, there were two cops that were a couple blocks down the street. And he's like, the whole time I'm sitting here thinking, fuck, if these cops try to intervene, like, I'm going to have to fucking kill them. And they never killed people who were not involved in the mafia. So that, so Gravano's like, please don't, don't walk this way. Don't walk this way. And he says he, they, uh, they actually turned the other way and walked away and, uh, they were out of range, you know, when, when everything went down. So he was actually pretty happy about that. He's like, I didn't want to fucking kill any cops, man. He's like, they had nothing to do with this shit, but if they intervened with it, yeah, I was going to fucking kill them. So after Castellano dies, Gotti is formally acclaimed the new boss of the Gambino family at a meeting of 20 capos held on January 15th, 1986. Gotti, in turn, selected DeSico as his underboss and uh, and uh, gave Gravano the promotion to capo, which is uh, a captain. So Gravano... He was, or Gotti, he was recognized as a boss by the other families, and that did include the Genovese family. Like I said, man, the, the, the Genoveses were, were purposely bypassed for this hit by Gotti and everybody else because they knew that, oh, Genoveses are gonna, you know, fucking squeal on us or whatever. Gotti assumed the uh, Gambino seat on the commission. The, the Genovese family was pissed that Gotti did, um, do this hit of a fucking boss without the permission of the commission. And they did 
you know, announced that a rule had been broken and somebody has to pay for it. There was all this shit going on with the Mafia Commission trial at the time and all this shit. So Gravano and DeSico had been, after the hit, Gravano and DeSico had been hiding out. They were in a safe house. They took the other family's full recognition of John Gotti as boss as them saying, okay, you know, he's the boss. So they felt that they were safe. So they came out of hiding and the Genoveses did make good on their threat. You know, in April of 86, uh, Frank DeSico was killed by a car bomb outside of Castellano's former social club in Bensonhurst. Uh, Gravano was actually at the club at the time and was, is, was blown clear off his feet by the blast. Uh, Gravano attempted to pull Frank DeSico from the car after it exploded. And he realized it was no no use because there's a fuckload of body parts laying around and shit. And he's like, hey, he's fucking dead. There's no way. And uh, Vincent Gigante, the boss of the Genovese family, did did organize this whole attack. And he had the backing of the Lucchese leaders, too. And the, the bomb was intended to kill both DeSico and Gotti. Okay. Uh, Gotti ended up not being at the bar that night he was supposed to meet gravano and DeSico. uh he had to reschedule it for something or whatever and the the they used a car bomb in order to divert suspicion which is super interesting because the the mob at this time never used fucking car bombs okay not not in new york anyway uh in cleveland they were doing it quite a bit i'm not sure about philly but um and that was the thing like even even gravano you know, and, and Gotti were like, ah, it couldn't have been Gigani, you know, is there's no way. It's like he wouldn't use bombs. You know, they literally, that was a direct quote. He wouldn't use bombs. So Frank DeSico's dead. The Gambinos have no underboss. Gotti chose to fill the vacancy with Angelo Ruggiero, and Gravano would be his co-underboss. Everything's starting to take form. We're in about 1986 right about now. So after Gotti took over, Gravano's in a high position, he's a captain, and he starts making his own hit list. And the first one on the hit list is a dude named Nicky Cowboy Mormondo. He was a former member of his crew. Now, Mormondo became addicted to crack cocaine, and Gravano thought that he had got another fellow crew member named Michael DeBat addicted to crack cocaine as well. Now, according to Gravano, Mormondo uh, started to act like a renegade, just totally berserk. And that's honestly a direct quote. That's what he said. Um, pretty much, he said, the, the final straw came when Mormondo announced he no longer wanted to be in the crew and planned to start his own gang. Gravano was like, I can't even take a chance with this shit because you know too much and this drug is going to get you fucking arrested somehow and you're going to fucking rat all of us out. So he gets permission from Gotti to kill Mormondo. Now Gravano arranged to have Mormondo murdered on his way to a meeting at Gravano's Bensonhurst restaurant named Tally's. Now after assuring Mormondo of his safety, Gravano told him to pick up Joseph Peruda on his way. Peruda got in the back seat of the car and shot Mormondo twice in the back of the head. Mormondo's corpse was then disposed of in a vacant lot where it was discovered the next day. Now in May of 1986, Gotti 
was imprisoned in the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York while he was awaiting trial on Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, which is the RICO, the RICO Act. So he, he's got a bunch of charges and shit, and he's, Gotti is forced to rely heavily on Gravano and Angelo Ruggiero and Joseph Pinium Armone, and he, they're managing the family's, like, day-to-day activities right now, okay? And he's still calling the shots while he's in jail, but those are the main dudes on the street doing shit for him. So in June, Gravano gets approached by Ruggiero, and apparently Gotti had told Ruggiero that he, according to Ruggiero, Gotti said, I want Gravano to kill Robert DiBernardo for making negative remarks about my leadership, which would be Gotti's leadership. Now, Gravano was friendly as shit with DiBernardo, and he tried to get the murder called off. You know, he had, and he hadn't had a chance to speak to Gotti yet, so he's literally going on Ruggiero's word right now. And Ruggiero said no. He's like, um, I met again with Gotti, and he told he told you, you know that uh, you know he wants you to kill Di Bernardo right right away. So Gravano arranged a meeting with Di Bernardo, where uh, Joe Peruta, a member of Gravano's crew, shot Ber- Di Bernardo twice in the back of the head uh, as Gravano watched. Gravano later learned that Ruggiero was $250,000 in debt to DiBernardo, and he realized that Ruggiero may have basically bullshitted the orders from Gotti just to have DiBernardo uh, killed to wipe his debt clean and shit. But DiBernardo's death death did prove profitable for Gravano. He took over his uh, control of his Teamsters Local 282 you know, which is a union. So, you know, Cravano ends up becoming part of that, making more money. Now, Gotti's trial ended in a mistrial due to a hung jury, and he was freed from jail. Now, the coolest part about how this happened was straight up Sammy Gravano, okay? Sammy Gravano found out that one of the jury, that, that the jury foreman could be bribed for $120,000. And Gravano was like, are you fucking sure? Like, 120 grand? Like, I can fucking do this, you know, whatever. Like, are you 100% sure? And his friend was like, yeah, 100% sure. So, he, Sammy Gravano straight up haggled this motherfucker down to $60,000, okay? He would say 20 up front, 20 at the middle of the trial, and 20 when fucking Gotti gets out. And he's, you know... It got, it, Gravano straight up made sure he's like, you tell this motherfucker, like, I'm loyal as shit. I will hold up my end of the deal. You know, he's like, you know, even Gravano, a lot of Gravano's business deals were handshakes, were, were verbal contracts. Like, he was not that bad of a businessman to work with from, from what I understand. He held up his end of the bargains because if everybody makes money, he makes money. Good news, you know, travels, and he's going to end up making more money because of that. So, yeah, he ended up uh, bribing the jury foreman for $60,000 and got John Gotti uh, a hung jury on that, on that trial. Got him a mistrial, which is fucking just insane. 
Um, Gravano's position within the family varied between 86 and 87. He started out as co-underboss, you know, then he was co-consigliere, then, um, uh, Joey Gallo and Armone were convicted of racketeering, you know, on November 2nd, 1987. Crew member Michael DeBat, who was hooked on fucking cocaine, DeBat's wife came to Gravano pleading for help. She told Gravano that DeBat stayed up at night with a gun, claiming they were coming to get him. Gravano at this point knew that he was too far gone to be trusted. They're like, you know, he's like, he's got to fucking go. So Gravano had to bat shot to death at Tally's, which was his uh, restaurant. Gravano crew member uh, shot him, put six bullets in his head and neck. The shooters emptied the cash register and left a bat in the bar to make it look like a robbery. Uh, and then afterward, immediately went to his wake. Handed over, I think, like, you know, I think it was like $500, brought $500, you know, as a donation for his funeral and shit. So in 1988, Gotti gets, uh, promotes, Gotti promotes Sammy the Bull Gravano to official consigliere. By this time, Gravano was regarded as a rising force in the construction industry. Um, I mean, he's in deep with executives at construction firms, unions, union officials, you know, they were all going to the, the Bensonhurst restaurant tallies, you know, but it did have a downside. Um, his, his quick rise in the Gambino family attracted the attention of the FBI and kids that he used to play handball with outside his office in Bensonhurst told him that, that the FBI were actually watching him, you know, so he was very soon after that placed under surveillance. Um, that, that was the first one. The second one was he started to sense some jealousy from John Gotti over the profitability of his legitimate businesses. And Gravano says, you know, he was like, I'm kicking up $2 million a year to Gotti just out of union activities alone. Just out of union activities alone, I'm kicking this dude two million fucking dollars. Like, how are you getting jealous over how profitable my fucking legit businesses are? You know, this is fucked up. So, you know, it's really weird because Sammy the Bull, he had a morning routine that he always had. You know, he was in the gym every morning by 7.30. He was, uh, you know, training and boxing in Brooklyn. Uh, he was actually sent to a hypnotist. He, because uh, his boxing trainer, you know, always suggests fighters go to a hypnotist to either drop weight or whatever the case might be. Um, Sammy the Bull requested from his hypnotist he wanted to stop eating sweets because Sammy the Bull had a huge sweet tooth. Um, the, his trainer, on the other hand, uh, a dude named Teddy Atlas, uh, you know, says... Well, he was going there and, you know, but he was also taking steroids apparently at this point in time. That's according to Teddy Atlas. Um, Sammy the Bull Gravano is not a big fan of Teddy Atlas at all anymore. Uh, he did a lot of, a lot of talking. So John Gotti at this point sets up base camp at the Ravenite Social Club and this I shit you not, dude. Like, Sammy was so fucking pissed about this. It literally gave him anxiety because John Gotti, being so cocky, set up his fucking headquarters literally a few minutes away from FBI headquarters. 
and Gotti makes all his top guys check in every afternoon, and, uh, you know, a retired FBI agent uh, actually remembered it. I saw him in an interview. He said every night at the end of the night, you know, Gotti and the entourage, entourage would go to party. Sammy the Bull would go go home to his family. And he said Sammy the Bull would, you know, tried to tell Gotti not to meet there. He's like, listen, man, like, like the people knew that Gotti was the boss because he was extremely flashy. The shit gave fucking Gravano so much fucking anxiety and i mean the media were showing up at the ravenite club the public were showing up you know just to talk to john Gotti or shake his hand and Gotti fucking loved it he craved that attention he loved the fucking spotlight but like i said man gravano was totally fucking different he's told opposite you know he was more of a traditional mobster like we need to keep this thing secret we don't exist blah 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 you know that whole de- whole deal so you know, they're starting to get a little bit of a wedge right there in between them with the way, you know, they're handling their daily activities. Now, there's a couple more murders. We got uh, Gravano ended up becoming the family's consigliere uh, and his old crew was taken over by uh, Louis Valerio. Uh, Louis Melito, which was Gravano's old buddy from, I mean, they were in the fucking rampers together. Now... He was not pleased with the decision of, you know, somebody else taking over his crew and Gravano becoming consigliere. So Melito made the mistake of telling other crew members that it was himself who should have been given the spot in Gravano's crew after Gravano's promotion and not Valerio. Now, Gravano claimed in his book, The Underboss, before the Castellano hit, Melito uh, had become much closer to Castellano and Bellotti, so he was, you know, kind of friends up there with them. You know, Castellano had informed Melito that Gravano should have been killed after the unsanctioned murder of Frank Viala, as well as after Gravano threatened fellow-made man Louis de Bono, but, you know, he didn't. Now, John Gotti and the Bergen crew are in some serious hot shit right now because Angelo Ruggiero and Gene Gotti, they got the heroin distribution charges, okay? And Melito was scared that Gravano and his crew could be in danger of being killed along with Gotti. So once Neil Della Croce died, Melito and this is according to Gravano, severed business ties with Gravano and started a loan shark operation with Tommy Bellito. Or not Bellito, Tommy Bellotti. Fuck, man, there's so many Italian names. Uh, when Castellano, Castellano and Bellotti were murdered, Melito was in prison. Now, when he got out, Gravano says that Gotti wanted Melito killed. Gravano said he stood up for Melito and stopped the murder from happening, you know, after... He was read the the riot act. Melito returned to Gravano's crew, uh, only to ba- you know he's sitting there talking shit about all his friends, talking about you know Gravano's choice as you know captain of the crew, and Melito call was called to a meeting to discuss the murder of a Gambino associate. Now Gene Gotti, uh, Joe Joe Carneglia. Lou Valerio and Arnold <laughs> Arnold Squitieri, Squitieri, 
I'm not sure how the fuck you pronounce that. They were present at this meeting, as was Gravano. Now, while Melito was drinking some espresso, Carneglia uh, shot him to death, and Melito's body has never been found. Now, Melito's wife, Linda, claims in her book, uh, it's called Mafia Wife, that Louis Melito did not come home or call, and she immediately went to see Gravano at his home. Now, Linda said Gravano gave her $5,000 and cut all ties to her. Linda also wrote that she saw a Gravano driving Louis Melito's Lincoln and was able to identify it by damage that uh, had been done to the car before Melito went missing. Uh, Linda, she would cry foul in her book, it says, and this is, I think, right from Wikipedia. You know, she cried foul in her book after Gravano testified he had not been the shooter in Melito's murder. She said that the Gambino family member, who was Gotti, later informed her Gravano had shot and killed Louis Melito, contrary to what Gravano told the FBI. So we got, you know, two different stories right there. Hard telling which one's true. Now, Gravano, in his book, The Underboss, which I honestly read back when I was like, oh my god, I was like 17 or 18 when I read that book. I actually still have a copy of it. It's a really fucking good book. Um, you know, he says that after Melito was killed, he finished the construction work Melito uh, was having done on his home and continued to support Linda Melito and her family. Now, even though Gravano was a consigliere, okay, which is a top position, it's literally boss, underboss, consigliere, captains, you know, and then, you know, soldiers or whatever, all right? Even though he had gone to consigliere, which is usually a pretty prominent position, Gotti is still having Gravano fucking murder people. Because, well, he followed orders. He was loyal. He didn't fucking argue about it. In May of 1988, Gravano and Robert B Bisecchia, uh, Bisaccia, I don't know. Uh, he's basically a crime family soldier from New Jersey. They murdered a dude named French Francesco Oliveri, uh, and he was killed for beating up a Gambino family crew member to death, beating him to death. Um, by Bisaccia shot Oliveri to death while Gravano waited in a stolen getaway car. In May 1988, uh, John Gotti finally got around to taking care of a dude named Willie Boy Johnson. Johnson was a childhood friend of Gotti's and a longtime crew member while Gotti was captain of the Bergen crew. However, uh, at Gotti's Rico trial, Diane Giacalone the head prosecutor revealed that Johnson had been an informant for the FBI for years. Johnson refused to testify for the prosecution. The under, in uh, Gravano's book, Underboss, he claims that Gotti met with Johnson during the trial and informed Johnson that as long as he never testified against Gotti, he and his family would not be harmed. Johnson would never be allowed to participate in mob matters again. Now, Johnson asked Gotti to swear on his dead son, Frank, uh, who had been killed in a car accident years ago. And Gotti did swear to that. Uh, now, Gotti was having second thoughts about this. Uh, he's, uh, according to Gravano, he says, quote, John discussed how it should go, using me to bounce off ideas about the best way to do it. That was my only involvement, end quote. 
And then Johnson was eventually shot while walking to his car to go to work in front of his house one day. Now, in November of 1989, the FBI plants bugs in the Ravenite upstairs apartment in the Ravenite Social Club. And this is where a lot of the most private meetings took place. Um, the FBI was building a pretty fucking good murder and racketeering case at about this point. And in January of 1990... Uh, according to FBI wiretaps in the apartment, Sammy Gravano gets the promotion of official underboss. And Gravano also knew that the heat was on him. He knew that there was a shitload of heat on him right now because Gotti is just all over in the news. You don't understand, like, celebrities were showing up for John Gotti's fucking trials. That's how fucking famous this dude was. And the FBI fucking hated him because he would beat every single fucking case. That's why he was known as the Teflon Don. Because, like, every single thing they tried to fucking bust this dude with and put him behind bars with would not fucking work. It'd be mistrials. He'd get acquitted. John Gotti fucking loved it. Sammy the Bull fucking hated it because... All this attention is coming, and now Sammy's the fucking underboss, and he starts worrying to himself like Sammy does. You know, he starts thinking about his family now. You know, he's like, fuck, man, if I go to prison, you know, I hope my son doesn't doesn't choose this life. You know, he starts thinking about shit like that. So, you know, all that aside, on August 9th, 1990, uh... Garofola or Garofalo was shot to death in front of his home, um, and it that was arranged by Gravano. Um, the last murder to involve Gravano was the murder of Louis de Bono. Uh, the it was like Gravano had already threatened to kill this dude years earlier. If you remember, he took it to Castellano. Um, he described the reasons for the murder in his book, The Underboss, and I'm going to quote directly from that. He was still robbing the family. He was still robbing the family, and I asked for permission to take him out. But John had a meeting with DeBono, and DeBono told John that he had a billion dollars of drywall work that was coming out of the World Trade Center. John bit hook, line, and sinker and refused my request. John said he would handle DeBono personally and become his partner. But DeBono was up to his old tricks, double dealing. He had obviously been bullshitting John. So when John called Louis in for, in for meetings to discuss their new partnership, DeBono didn't show up. John was humiliated. This meant an automatic death penalty. John gave, gave the contract to DeBono's captain, Pat Conte. Conte botched the ideal opportunity to kill DeBono. Then, as Gotti grew increasingly impatient, Conti explained that the problem now was trying to corner DeBono again. Whenever a meeting with him was arranged, DeBono never appeared. It was a joke. When I, or, uh, it was a joke, what was going on. I couldn't stop laughing to myself. I told John why, why didn't Pat simplify everything. Just call Louie up and tell him to hang himself. Ten months went by. 
John looks like an asshole. He was too embarrassed to even ask me for help. End quote. In October of 1990, a construction associate of Gravano's unknowingly informed Gravano of DeBono's activities. Now, Gravano informed Gotti, and eventually DeBono's body was found in his car in the parking lot of the World Trade Center. Now, Gravano's intentions for this murder would be called into question as it was suspected that Gravano might have had reasons for wanting DeBono dead due to his jealousy over DeBono's drywall business. I personally don't really see that. I mean, I can see it being a possibility, but Gravano had a fuckload of businesses. I'm not really seeing how he's going to be jealous over that dude's drywall business. He had a lot of legitimate businesses. So, with Gotti's permission, Gravano then set up the murders of Tommy Spiro and several other Gambino associates. There's not even a definite number on that. It just literally says several. So, here's when shit starts turning downhill. On December 11th, 1990, FBI agents and NYPD detectives raided the Ravenite Social Club. They arrested Sammy Gravano... John Gotti, and Frank Lucasio. Gravano pleaded guilty to a sub, uh, superseding racketeering charge, and Gotti, charged with, Gotti was charged with five murders. Castellanos, Bellotti, DiBernardo, Laborio, Melito, and Louis de Bono. He was also charged with conspiracy to murder a dude named Astola, he was charged with loan sharking, illegal gambling, obstruction of justice, bribery, and fucking tax evasion. <laughs> like, holy shit, man. Like, Gotti was literally charged with five murders, conspiracy to commit another one, loan sharking, illegal gambling, construction of obstruction of justice, bribery, and tax evasion. That's fucking insane. At the same time, it really sucks because Gotti's two lawyers... Uh, a dude named Cutler and a dude named Shargle. Uh, they were disqualified from defending Gotti and Gravano after prosecutors successfully proved that they were quote-unquote part of the evidence and thus they were liable to be called as witnesses, which is fucked up, right? So on December 21st, 1990... All these FBI tapes that they were taken at the Ravenite Social Club, they get played, okay? And FBI agents are fucking playing all these tapes for Sammy. They're playing them in court during the initial hearings as well. And this puts a huge, huge wedge between Gotti and Gravano. Because in these tapes, Gotti is sitting here telling, talking about how Sammy Gravano is so fucking greedy. And then he tries pinning some murders that he ordered, that he had other people do for him, starts blaming them on Gravano. You know, he blames DiBernardo, Melito, and DeBono on fucking Gravano. And Gotti just literally, Gotti was fucking embarrassed when they played these tapes in the courtroom. Because he's sitting here fucking talking shit about the one dude who was the most loyal person to him and he was literally jealous over greed 
You know what I mean? He was jealous of all these fucking businesses that Gravano had popping up. And these tapes are easy to find on YouTube. You can listen to them. Like, he's straight talking shit about this dude. And, dude, it pisses Sammy Gravano off so fucking bad, right? So, based on the tapes from the FBI bugs, you know, they were played in pretrial hearings. They were played to Sammy Gravano personally. The Gambino fam, or everybody involved with the Gambinos in this trial, they were all denied bail, okay? They put each guy in separate cells. cells. They all had, they were all in isolation on 23-hour lockdown. And all Sammy has to do is sit here and think about this. This, I mean, for a month. Alright, he's just sitting here fucking stewing on this shit. And there's two things that he's thinking, Okay, how can this guy literally disrespect me this bad when I've fucking done everything for him, no questions asked? So, while he's in a 23-hour lockdown thinking about this, um, after a month they get released from isolation, and Gotti invites Sammy the Bull to go talk to him. You know, so Sammy goes and he meets up with him, you know, in general population or whatever, and Gotti says... Oh, I was just, I was just talking on those tapes, man. I, you know, that was nothing. That's no big deal. You know, I was just talking. Well, he basically tells Sammy Gravano, he's like, you know, the reason I did that is because somebody's got to lead the family. You know, I'm the boss. So if anybody's going to lead the family, you know, it's got to be me. You know, I need to, you know, you basically, he's basically setting Gravano up to be the sacrificial lamb and take all the fucking charges. And then Gotti would get acquitted because Sammy would be taking all the blame. That pissed Gravano off even more. So he starts, starts thinking about, he, he, he's like, listen, like I'm not going to fucking win this case. There's no fucking way. I'm, either going to go to prison for for some shit that I didn't do, which, trust me, he did a lot of shit, okay? I am not trying to pull for this guy's fucking innocence whatsoever. But the scenario is literally like John Gotti gets acquitted, Sammy the Bull takes all the blame for every single thing when half of the shit was shit he didn't even do. Pretty much, like, Gotti sold this motherfucker out. And he's like, no matter what, even if I do get acquitted, I'm fucking dead. Like, they are go- it's literally a death sentence, no matter how Gravano looks at it. He's either getting life in prison, or fucking, I don't even know about New York's, I don't think New York had death penalty at that time or whatever, but, I mean, he's either getting life in prison, or if he even gets out, he's getting fucking killed because he knows so fucking much. Or even in prison, he'll still get fucking killed because he knows so much, right? So, Sammy the Bull decides to turn. And he tells his family what he's going to do. Now, his daughter and his wife were the first people that he told. And his daughter cried. His daughter cried and literally ran out of the room because her father was going to become a rat. And that was like the worst fucking thing imaginable and his wife on the other hand and this this honestly does make me a little bit sad because 
Sammy was thinking about his family when he made the decision to turn. You know, yeah, he was thinking about himself. I will, obviously. But he was also thinking about his family. You know, and his wife straight up was like, I don't want to put the kids through witness protection. Um, I'm, I'm leaving. And she walked out of the room and essentially left him. Like, right fucking there. And Sammy is just like, well, fuck me then, right? So on midnight, November 8th, 1991, the FBI comes to pick up Sammy the Bull Gravano. And supposedly one of the guards goes and does inform John Gotti of the decision. And John Gotti knew, you know, the feds are coming to transfer somebody at midnight. He fucking turned. Like Gotti knew immediately that he had turned, right? So they take Sammy the Bull to Quantic. They take Sammy the Bull to Quantico, Virginia, uh, which is, I think, like FBI training or FBI headquarters, not 100% sure. It doesn't really matter. On November 13th, 1991, at the age of 46, Sammy the Bull officially agrees to testify. He is the second highest member of the most powerful crime family in America. After, after a couple weeks, he meets with lawyers to cut a deal, and he agrees to testify for two fucking years in any case the government wanted. The most prison In return, the most prison time that Gravano could get was 20 years. In New York, I shit you not, in New York, when people found out that he was testifying against Gotti, like regular people, fucking civilians started making flyers they like they made fucking millions of these flyers and it was pictures of sammy the bull's head on a fucking rat body you know with the words i'm a rat the thing about it was was sammy the bull he knew he was guilty and he fucking had remorse but he honestly thought the government was gonna fuck him over that's how much he trusted the fucking fbi he's like he honestly was scared that the government was gonna fuck him over which you know hey not out of the realm of possibilities, right? So in January of 1992, jury selection begins, and it's an anonymous jury. And for the first time in Brooklyn, in a Brooklyn federal case, a fully sequestered, um, fully sequestered during the trial due to Gotti's reputation for jury tampering, which is fucking insane, right? Now, a month later, on February 12th, uh, the trial started, you know, the prosecution's opening statements. You know, they had, uh, they began their case by playing tapes showing Gotti discussing Gambino family business, including member, or including murders he approved and confirming the an, uh, animosity between Gotti and Castellano to establish the, the motive to kill Castellano, establishing Gotti's motive, right? So on March 2nd, after calling an eyewitness of the Sparks hit, uh, who identified uh, Carneglia as one of the men who shot Bilotti, uh, they that's when they brought Gravano out to testify. And he, like I said, he was at the time the highest ranking member of the mafia ever to testify in the court of law. Now, while he got on the stand... He confirmed Gotti's place in the structure of the Gambino family, which was a, a boss. He described his life in the mob, described in detail the conspiracy to assassinate Castellano, and he gave a full description of the hit and how everything 
came about afterward, like how Gotti became boss. Now, FBI agents and even prosecutors were like, when, when Gravano was on the stand, he was very sharp. He always kept his composure. He was very articulate. Like, he fucking knew what he was talking about, and he had a stellar fucking memory. Now, Gotti is over here. There's outbursts. You know, Gotti's calling him names, calling him a junkie because of his past steroid use. And he would sit there and just stare him down. You know, Gotti had fucking guys in the, uh, you know, I don't want to say the audience of the court, but they were, you know, some of the onlookers. They're taunting fucking Sammy the Bull the whole time. Never cracked. Never lost his composure. The testimony lasted nine days, and at the very end of it, Sammy the Bull's final statement was, quote, I was a good, loyal soldier. John barked, and I bit, end quote. So on April 2nd, 1992, the jury finds John Gotti guilty of murder and racketeering charges. On June 23rd, 1992, uh, the judge sentenced Gotti and uh, Lacascio to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole and a $250,000 fine. And they were sent to the U.S. Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, or at least Gotti was. I'm not sure about Lacascio. Uh, on December 14, 1992, Gotti surrendered to federal authorities to serve his prison time. Now, Sammy the Bull spends the next two years testifying in court. He testified at seven different trials. The only trial that he would not testify at was John Gotti Jr.'s trial because Gotti Jr. worked with his son and he did not want to anything reflecting on his family whatsoever. So he refused to uh, testify at John Gotti Jr.'s trial. He also testified at a U.S. Senate hearing on organized crime, which focused on mob corruption in sports. Now, at, at the end of the day, when it was all said and done, there were 39 people that Sammy the Bull Gravano put behind bars. And that includes a cop, a juror, union officials, four crime family bosses, nine captains, and over 30 soldiers. That is fucking insane. The weirdest part about it is that usually when these guys would show up in court, they would they would plead not guilty all the time. They would fight it till their last fucking breath. You know, they would, you know, bribe the jury, you know, intimidate the jury. But in all of these cases, I, I can't say all of them, but most of these cases, people straight up just pled guilty because they knew that. If Sammy the Bull Gravano was testifying in this trial, they knew that Sammy the Bull was there, that he fucking knew everything. And and they, they're like, well, there's no fucking use. I'm just going to plead guilty and get a plea deal. And that's that's exactly what they did, which is super crazy. On October 26, 1994, a federal judge sentenced Gravano to five years in prison and three years supervised release. Now, since Gravano had already served four years, the sentence amounted to less than seven more months to serve. You know, and, and I'll say this, when he was sentenced, uh, the judge who sentenced him said, quote, there had never been a defendant 
whose impact on organized crime has been so important and so extensive, end quote. And I think that played, like, obviously a huge factor in his sentencing. So on April 19th, 1995, Sammy the Bull gets out of federal prison for government witnesses. Uh, Gotti had, by that time, put a $2 million bounty on his head. Now, before he goes into the witness protection program, the government did a psych evaluation, you know, psychological evaluation on Sammy the Bull, and they said the likelihood of violent behavior is substantial. He continues to be violent despite his age, and that is a direct quote, and from there he entered the U.S. Federal Witness Protection Program. The government moved him to Tempe, Arizona, where he assumed the name Jimmy Moran and started a swimming pool installation company because, well, Sammy the Bull was a businessman. It's what he does best. At one point, Gotti Jr., it was found out through FBI wiretaps that John Gotti Jr. was going to send guys to kill Sammy the Bull Gravano. He straight up said, when the FBI fucking told him this, he straight up said, quote, I don't want to hide. Let them come and get me. I'm a man. I'll fight. And I tell you what, man, that's that's Sammy the Bull up until 1995, all right? Within six years, Sammy the Bull Gravano becomes one of the biggest ecstasy drug kingpins in the southwest united states hope you guys enjoyed it have a good one